most of the loans we buy are 10 years old. So these people have so much equity. Now, if you have all this equity in your house, are you gonna let someone come in and foreclose on you? Or are you gonna fight tooth and nail to keep the house? Hello, and thank you for joining us today on the Gentle Art of Crushing It show, where we focus on learning and sharing with our listeners all there is to know about how to create success in our lives. This show stands on the shoulders of giants. Our mission is to empower and inspire our listeners to create the life of their dreams whilst having a blast in the process. Let's celebrate life together. Welcome to the show. All right. Welcome back to the Gentle Art of Crushing It podcast. My name's Randy, and I'll be your host today. And we're going to focus on something new today, note investing. And I am really excited to have a friend of mine, Chris Seveny, on with us. And he is the CEO and founder of 7E Investments. And he spent about 25 years in construction and development prior to getting into that space. So welcome to the show, Chris. Excited to have you here. Thanks, Randy. Excited to be here. All right. Well, let's jump into the world of note investing. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your path to where we are today and jump into this note investing thing? Yes. Uh, I actually chuckled when you said the, the, the gentle art because uh, there's nothing gentle in real estate in my mind, um, investing. Uh, so let's uh, you know I'll backtrack a little bit. Uh, uh, age myself. I graduated college in the mid to late 90s and started working for a large commercial general contractor at that time and got to build some really cool projects, uh, high-rise multifamily buildings, office, retail, you name it. I pretty much built it. Uh, but okay. after about 15 years of that, uh, you know, you kind of get a little burnt out. Um, so, so I got, uh, I moved to Washington, DC. Uh, I was originally from New England area and, uh, is, uh, from, you know, I'll say I went over to the dark side, which uh, from a contracting side, that is going to work for a developer. Uh, <laughs> sure. Probably the best move I ever made because everyone I was working with was very entrepreneurial. And my supervisor at the time said, what do you have for real estate? And I'm like, nothing. I got a 401k. And he basically, first he laughed, then I think he cried, and then he scolded me uh, <laughs> in regards to uh, getting my own portfolio. And my wife and I, in 2013, built our primary residence and end up having a boatload of equity because we acted as a general contractor on it. And you. that started my real, personal real estate career. And that kind of is what launched 7E Investments. Uh, in 2015, uh, we started buying some local real estate in Washington, D.C. area. And we were doing, you know, the bigger pockets burr strategy where you buy, rehab, rent, refinance, that whole thing. And we, we did several of those and we were able to get all our money out. It was great, but we also had two little kids at the time. And my wife uh, basically said, okay, we're done. We, I mean, we just, we didn't have the time, honestly, to do it. Sure. And uh, you were working a full-time job. I was still working a full-time job yeah. for a real yeah. estate developer. And I was, you know, I was managing at that time, a 60 unit uh, condo complex where the average unit was a little over $2 million and you know, a lot of the who's who of Washington, D.C. were moving into this building. So uh, working with people like that also, they are highly demanding, to say the least. Yeah, I bet. Uh, but what I ended up doing was uh, the stubborn person I am didn't want to give up. So I ended up falling into note investing. And, you know, most people 
you know, they hear about it and like, what is that? And I said the same thing. And I was actually, as I mentioned pre-recording, I was kind of ticked off when I found out that this existed because, uh, you know, it's such a fun business to be in if you like conflict, I guess. But, okay. um, so what note so most people think of private lending okay you go you give somebody a loan and you just collect the payments and you act as the bank what mortgage note investing is or what we do is different where we're buying residential mortgages so if you own a house um, we may buy your mortgage from the lender and just step into that position now you'll think okay that doesn't seem interesting uh, but our primary focus focus is on distressed mortgages. So we're buying loans from banks and hedge funds for people who are delinquent on their mortgages. And that has been our primary, you know, I'll say bread and butter since uh, 2016. Are you interested in real estate investing, but don't know where to get started or think you don't have the time or money? Are you stuck in your W-2 because the golden handcuffs make it hard to walk away? If this sounds like you, check out impactequity.net and schedule some time to talk with the founder, Randy Smith. Randy went from massive income to leaving his W-2 through passive income, and he can help you do the same. www.impactequity.net. So, yeah, that, that's interesting. I've not dealt in this space, and you had mentioned that, that I'm going to be excited about this when I hear about it. So, yep. <clears throat> so I'm thinking what comes to mind first is all those years that we had coming into the last year or so, there's a lot mm -hmm. of people with very, very low loans. So three, four, 5% loans. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't imagine anybody ever defaulting or going late, late on those loans. Like what, mm -hmm. what is the, what are the actual results in that space? Are those good mortgages to get or are those less from the last few years? Yeah. Well, when you look at the numbers, you know, the mortgage industries, you know, 13, 14 trillion dollar industry. So, and you look at today, we're at all time lows or two to 3% default rates. You know, we still got 400 billion in defaulted loans. So it's still very low rate, but there's still a lot of them out there. Okay. Now you mentioned, you know, a lot of loans at three, four, 5%, you know, that might be for somebody like you or I who might have impeccable credit, but a lot of people either be coming out of 2008 and, you know, buying houses in 2011 and 12, you know, there's, we see most of the loans we see were originated at rates anywhere from, you know, five and a half up to 8% because these people may not have had that 750 credit score. They may have been, you know, high fives, low sixes sure. um, in, in that range. So that's where we see a lot of the loans that are delinquent in that area. Um, most of the time, like I said, the three percent are, you know, loans usually don't see a lot of those. Got it. Okay. So now, and I suspect you're not buying onesie twosies. You're probably buying tranches of loans when you do buy them, right? Correct. I mean, we have bought one-offs in the past. And of course, when I got started, that's how I started was, you know, started buying, you know, one at a time and just kept scaling. But now our preference is to buy, you know, anywhere from, you know, 10 to a hundred at a time. Wow. So you're okay. So you're having to buy, I mean, those are big dollars obviously that you're mm -hmm. buying and you're buying them. I suspect these are, these are distress or these non-performing loans, people that are not paying their mortgages today or. Correct. Yep. So they're distressed or non-performing. They're typically more than 90 days behind. And one of the questions that I love to ask uh, people when I come on a uh, podcast is, 
I pushed a question back is, what do you think the average delinquency or how many months behind do you think the average loan we buy is? Well, you said at least 90 days. So I'm guessing 90 days to a year, um, probably, right? About three to four years. Is it really? So banks will hold on to loans three to four years before they sell them off or write them off. That's that's amazing. Why would they not? It, why would they not just per, pursue evictions or something like that? So banks and, you know, if you've ever had to deal with a bank and, you know, you have a business, um, yeah. you know, getting stuff done through a bank is, you know, similar to like almost like buying a car. You go there knowing sure. you're going to lose an hour. And yeah. on a very simple process, uh, banks, you know, are typically sometimes inefficient. I like to compare them to think of a car on, on, on the assembly line. You know, everything goes well on the assembly line. They just, you know, chug away. The moment yeah. something happens on an assembly line, you know, all hell breaks loose. And think of that with <laughs> sure, a, sure. a loan. And banks only have so many people. And what they'll typically do is when a loan goes non-performing, they'll do like a 60-day sprint of trying to get in touch with the borrower, trying to work something out. And then after that, it's almost like it sticks in a file and they just send statements and they keep passing it off to somebody else in different departments. Wow. Um, so, wow. I mean, we've seen loans. We have a loan right now that is over 11 years without, um, you know, payments on it. So, okay. it's, you know, they're very inefficient. So I love mentioning that because most people think that, oh, my God, I miss a payment. I'm going to come get my door beaten down and thrown out. <laughs> sure, you know, sure. With a bank, a traditional bank, that ain't happening because they don't even know what they have half the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I'm curious, is this all of the major banks or are these just some of the smaller? Are there certain banks that you focus on because mm -hmm. of those specific details? Or Yeah, so we typically don't buy directly from a bank because a lot of the banks will either take it and securitize these loans, um, which then they have to come out of security, but in most instances, they get sold to larger hedge funds and eventually make their way down the pipeline, like, you know, BlackRock to another fund, to a billion, to a 500 million, and, um, you know, the tranches. Where we do see some banks sell are, they will typically uh, use a M&A company. So okay. again, banks don't know who's going to buy these things. So they'll go to an M&A company who is called also a whole loan trader. And then okay. through them, we'll uh, be able to get portfolios. For example, um, the uh, Signature Bank. So Signature yeah. Bank, their portfolio just sold, uh, you know, it was broken up into many different tranches of different assets. And they went through a whole loan trader, the FDI, well, the FDIC did. They went through a company basically who's good at the M&A side and, you know, getting rid of that stuff to get that out the door. So the so the original loan holder sells this off to another group at yeah. a discount who sells it off to another group at a discount. And then at some yeah. point mm -hmm. you step in and you're buying. But what's the would you say the average is closer to the three or four or what is what's the average um, delinquency on the loans yeah, that you're buying? Yeah, the average is about three to four for us. Three is to four really? years. Yep. OK. Um, and then so clearly you're buying those at some sort of discount, I suspect. Is it correct? Is it? 10% off, 20% off, 50% off? 30 to 60, depending on the state and, you know, understanding real estate and investing, you know, time is money. So time sure. value money. And okay. the interesting thing about note investing, 
uh, which is different than I'll say being a landlord is, you know, for a landlord, most of the laws are the same, you know, evictions might change slightly. Uh, but when you're a lender, uh, the foreclosure process is very different state by state. So some states you can foreclose in a very short period of time. And then you have, you know, Georgia, Texas, even California actually is pretty quick from a time frame. You can be in and out in, you know, three to six months. Then okay. you deal with states like New York, Hawaii, uh, others that it can take four to five years to foreclose. Wow. Okay. Um, so, mm-hmm. so then is your business model, is it to buy these loans and then attempt to, I don't know what the term is, it, is it cure, attempt to cure those loans and get them paying again? Mm-hmm. Or is the goal ultimately to to go through the eviction process and then sell the assets. Yeah, our typically our goal is to uh, you know get the borrower on a new payment plan. So we you know like to explain it to people. Again, people like to fix and flip properties. You have a property that's dilapidated, so you can buy it at a discount to fix it and then resell it. We do the same thing, but we're doing it with the borrower. So you know we don't own the property because we're the lender, but we like to try and do a workout with the borrower where, okay, let's get a down payment for them. Let's get them on a new payment plan. And then after a period of time, that loan will be cured and considered performing that then will sell at less of a discount. So, you know, so that's kind of that process. And the reality of it is today when people say, oh, well, I want to get in this to foreclose, uh, we foreclose on less than 10% of our portfolio. And typically it's because the person's deceased or they don't want the property. Okay. And the main reason why, Randy, is if you think about what happened to real estate values the last three or four years, most most of the loans we buy are 10 years old. So these people have so much equity. Now, if you have all this equity in your house, are you going to let someone come in and foreclose on you? Or are you going to fight tooth and nail to keep the house? Absolutely. Yeah. So really, I mean, you guys are bringing kind of a good news story to the owners at that point mm-hmm. where it's, you know, your goal is just simply let's let's get a few, few dollars. You got to have mm-hmm. some type of a down payment just yep. so we know that you're serious about paying your mortgage. And then mm-hmm. let's get you on track and get some mm-hmm. history on this. And then essentially mm-hmm. you're in good standing and the home is yours and you go, everybody goes on their happy way, essentially. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, what do most people do after seven years? You know, they either sell or refinance. So, okay. or we sell the loan. I mean, we typically will keep our loans for about 18 months to two years is what our life cycle is. Some a little longer, okay. some a little shorter. But, you know, that's a typical life cycle. Interesting. Yeah. So, I, and I'm guessing, so you buy at a, call it a 30% discount, and then you sell it at a 20% discount. And the the variance or the arbitrage there is the profit that you mm-hmm. and your investors get to share in then, I guess? Yep. And when you think about, you know, a mortgage uh, payment, um, A, we collected payments during that time, but where's, the, where's most of your mortgage payment go? Interest. So their balance yeah. is... I mean, we collect all that money, but the balance is really barely paid down. So, when, you know, so that's part of that whole process as well. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. So, um, it's interesting when I, when I've heard about note investing in the past, I, um, I thought onesie twosie, I've heard about buying in tranches. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really understand the mechanics behind it. So can, can you walk through like an example of an asset, like, you get a, a loan that's a $200,000 loan and then you buy it for X amount and then sell it for X amount and what that yeah. whole that whole process could look like? Yeah, so I'll you know try and keep the numbers as simple as possible. Maybe so your like, average deal, right? You probably yeah. know averages pretty well, right? Yeah, so our average deal right now is a $160,000 loan balance. 
Okay. And we are paying approximately about $110,000 for that loan. So they owe 160, we buy it for 110, and the property itself is worth about 400,000. So when we look at, from an investment perspective, uh, you know, the loan to value or a risk profile, uh, you know, and we also, as a lender, we don't take on debt. So our investors are, our investors, there's not a capital stack of 70% debt, you know, debt in front of them. So we like to try and keep our our loan to value under 40% um, on, you know, on a lot of these loans or investment to value, I should say, below that. So in an instance like that, so we just did a, an example of a workout where the borrower's payment is uh, $1,300 a month and they were 18 months behind. Uh, we took a payment of $6,500 down. So we took five months of payments from them, which they just pay, literally paid us on Friday. And then in six months, if they make six consecutive payments, we will re-amortize the loan and we'll roll the past due amount and add it to the new principal balance. So their principal balance might will go up by 10,000, but now the loan is brought current so they don't have to deal with late fees or any other penalties. And then it also, from a credit reporting standpoint, it allows them to rebuild their credit, which of course helps us when they're paying because then it gives them the ability down the road to course, you know, try and refinance the loan. And the other thing about refinancing, when you look at some of these loans is people not only look at the rate, but they look at what their payment is. You know, this loan only has about 10 years left. If this person went and refinanced it at a 30 year rate, they'd probably save about 500 bucks a month. So, so it's part of that whole equation as well. But that's, you know, and then our goal will be uh, to try and sell this thing down the road for, but they are 160, so probably a 10 to 15 percent discount on it. So somewhere around 135 to 145 would be okay. what we try and. Well, okay, so you you sit on it for six to nine months, and you end up making ultimately, yeah, twenty five thirty thousand dollars. Yep. Wow, fantastic! So yeah. so essentially, going back to that initial analogy, you're flipping without ever having to own it. Um, you're you're adding value because you're moving them from not paying to paying, and mm -hmm. then when you sell it on the back end, you still are selling it at a discount. So there's mm -hmm. probably a ton of banks that want to buy that buy that Thanks. performing loan at that point. Other funds, IRA investors looking for cash flow. You know, there's sure. a lot of people on that back end, and you know, one thing we'll mention is, you know, it sounds nice and easy. You know, typically yeah. this process will take four to six months to get them to come to the table because. Right. They are of the mindset of every, the banks have left them alone for the last few years. So they get a new statement, you know, they just ignore it and don't do anything. Sure. A lot of times we'll have to get, you know, the letter from the law offices of ABC. Yeah. That's usually what wakes people up to get them to come back to the table. Got it. Cause they're, they just know it's been four years and they've been getting all these threatening letters and nothing ever happens anyways. Yep. Okay. So, so let's talk about the guy that does it. Um, finally return the call or, or mm -hmm. the, the email or the letter, yep. do you guys start going down the foreclosure path? And does that have kind of a predictable response? Uh, it does. Uh, so we'll, you know, go down that foreclosure path and then, um, you know, typically one of three things happen. A, they bury their head in the sand and get foreclosed upon. Sure. 
B is they will, you know, uh, you know, beg for forgiveness uh, the last second and try and work something out. Sure. Or C, they'll file bankruptcy. And in most instances, C is the response that way they will do, especially if they truly cannot afford the property. Um, you know, and again, rarely do we foreclose the first time around. If someone can't afford it, they will go bankruptcy in that first uh at first and, and then in bankruptcy, they lose the house anyways? No, in bankruptcy, it's actually they're protected. So what will happen is, so let's say a borrower is $60,000 behind. What the bankruptcy will do, and this is you know not going to get too deep because there's multiple bankruptcies, but they'll take that 60000 and they amortize it over 60 months. So they'll say, okay, now you have to make your regular mortgage payment, but the bankruptcy plan will now let you pay that sixty grand back over 60 months. So you have to pay an extra thousand a month. It may garnish the wages, but we've seen plans where um, the borrower made $20,000 a year and uh, basically had a $900 mortgage payment. They're $110,000 behind. So they had to pay essentially $3,000 per month um, in bankruptcy where they made 20,000 a year. The funny thing is the court approved that plan. It doesn't make any sense. The math doesn't work, right? No. So we basically, my attorney's like, there's no use fighting it because it's just going to drag it on. Just let the guy fail. Right. And, you know, You'll I joke, I'm like, end. yeah, and I joke, I'm like, okay, if any bank went and gave somebody who made $20,000 a year a loan that cost 3000 a month, they'd be in an orange jumpsuit. But, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, the bankruptcy court, you know, it's okay for them to do it. Yeah. Well, very interesting. I, gosh, I've learned a lot already, and it, we're just 20 minutes into this. But um, I, I've, I've got to ask the question. This is an, uh, a podcast around passive mm -hmm. investing for the newer, newer passive investors. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds intriguing. Clearly, I can see how you guys are making dollars. But mm -hmm. what does that look like for the passive investor? Yeah. So with the passive investors, uh, you know, we the way we structured our fund is – you know, we don't charge fees to the fund. Uh, so it's very different than a standard, you know, I'll say multifamily where you get acquisition, disposition type of fees. Uh, we have a team uh, that manages our portfolio where we're salaried employees. So we get, you know, we get paid a salary and we don't get, you know, any upside until after the investors are paid. So try to make it a win-win. Uh, investors get between 8% and 11% is the returns that the investors get. And one of the things we did structure it a little differently is anybody who invests in a lot of debt funds, you know, you get, you know, for me, I'll call it the dreaded K-1. And a lot of times it's taxed as ordinary income because it's considered interest. Uh, we structured it as a C corporation. So we actually issue a 1099 uh, dividend form, which, uh, you know, is taxed as if, you know, um, you know, you own like Apple stock or anything else. So if you hold it for a period of time, then it is, I forget, uh, I think it's qualified dividends. Um, but of course, I'm not providing any tax advice. Sure, uh, sure. So, you know, that that also, you know, provides a nice benefit to the investors because A, they're not waiting till whenever to get a K-1. We can issue those forms in January and they're okay. paying, you know, the they're not paying that ordinary income tax rate on it. So it's a nice little benefit okay. there for the investors and they pay so they pay capital gains then is what it is yeah so they would pay you know what zero 15 or 20 percent depending on you know which okay. they're in. and it's it's long-term capital gains it's not short-term 
it would be long term again if you know we have a three to four year hold period so if you're in it for that long then you know but i think what's the statutes what 90 days i think or something like that after 90 days with because you're buying stock in the company again you're not owning real estate you're actually buying a share of the company Got it. And so can, and, and do you get monthly or quarterly distributions or what does that look like? Uh, monthly. So we issue monthly uh, distributions to our investors. Um, okay. And, you know, and can they reinvest? Uh, we don't have a drip, uh, you know, because of having audited financials and having to report to the SEC, uh, it okay. is extremely painful and would have basically tripled our auditing and accounting costs. So, sure. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, so if somebody invested today, they would start accruing the interest on the first day of the following month. So at the end of next month, they would get their first uh, distribution. And we did what's called a regulation A plus offering. So yeah. uh, we allow accredited, non-accredited, and our minimum investment's only five grand. Okay, so non-accredited investors as little as $5,000 investments. Yep. Unreal, okay. So yeah, so that is, that's a different exemption than the 506Bs and Cs that I'm used to dealing with. So yep. can can you talk about that a little bit more? Was that, um, why don't more groups do that? Is it a rather lengthy process or is it difficult or costs more? It absolutely costs more. It costs about 10 times the cost of putting together a 506C or 506B. Uh, the, from a time frame, I started in November of 21 with the attorney putting everything together. We submitted in April of 22 and got qualified in July of 22. So now when you look at kind of doing your first 506C, you're going to spend two, three months back and forth with the attorney anyway. So here it took us about 90 days to get qualified to the SEC. Uh, I think one reason why people didn't do it the last five years is because it was very easy to raise money, you know, and they can get it from accredited investors, not have to you know, get, they could get those big checks, which would fill their coffers. Uh, for us doing a note fund, and again, look back at a few years ago, us trying to compete against a multifamily investor, especially a accredited one, we couldn't. And, you know, just be frank, you know, but we also tell people, hey, you got to look at risk profile and everything else as part of this investment. But by opening up, are offering to a lower minimums and non-accredited where I can sit on your podcast and say, we can have non-accredited investors and not get, you know, slapped on the wrist like you do with a 506B, you know, it opened it up to a a much larger audience. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm curious about what is, um, I'm sure you have a lot of details on your investors. What is, what is your average investor investing? Are they, is this liquid, meaning they can pull it out at any point, or is it um, something that you hold on to for a certain amount of years, or mm-hmm. what are all those details? Yeah, so our average investor, so we've got about uh, between 500 and 600 investors right now in the fund. The average investment is a little under 40000 uh, per investor. We have a very high rate of reinvestment where people start with 5000 and then basically, you know, see, hey, is this real? And then, you know, contribute more, uh, which I think is actually a positive because I'm an investor. And when someone has a $100,000 minimum, I am very uncomfortable. <laughs> Me too. That. Me too. Five yeah. grand, you know, hey, five grand is still a lot of money, but I'm not going to, uh, you know, get kicked out of my house if I lost five grand. 
underground, yeah. probably sleeping at the, you know, at the end of the street. Um, there you go. You know, from liquidity, uh, it's, I'll, I'll use the term, it, it's not liquid in the sense of there is between a three and four year hold period for investors. After okay. that, you can pull it out. Uh, so, hmm. you know, unlike, again, I do like to compare multifamily where kind of you pull it out based off of when the deal exits. For us, yep. we have that three to four year hold period, depending on, we also have a 506C um, tied to this reg A. Uh, we try and get, you know, two turns of the investment. So that's what, you know, I mentioned it's 18 to 24 months to turn assets. So we, you know, had the investment structured to give it kind of two turns with the investors. Yep. And if they've gotten um, eight to 11% consistently over three to four years, odds are they're going to leave it with you unless the the yep. investment market looks very different than it does today. So yep. even if it does, I would imagine. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, yeah. I can understand why you were frustrated when you heard about this model after <laughs> um, not, not knowing about this for a lot of years. It's, mm -hmm. it's just amazes me how many different ways there are to invest in real estate, whether either directly or in, in groups and, and funds like yours. Um, yeah, I'm really intrigued with this. Where do, where do you see kind of this market or this segment of the investment space going in the, in the next few years? Yeah, so it's interesting because we do like to think we're in a little bit of a niche space because there are a lot of other debt funds out there that you know are in a lot of them are very good and a lot of them are on commercial assets and you know they'll buy distress or performing or they'll originate commercial assets with us being in that kind of more residential space you know we've created a nice little market segment of where you know we want to get to about 150 to 250 million uh personally i believe we're going to continue to see uh an increase in distressed assets you know to give you an idea randy of kind of the, the flow that we see you know, at the beginning of this year, we were seeing about 300, $250 million to $300 million of assets come across our desk every quarter. Uh, and that is performing, non-performing, um, you know, the mix. In quarter two, we were seeing about $250 million a month. So from wow. a quarter to a month. So now we're starting, you know, in quarter four, we're seeing about $250 million a week and assets. Oh my goodness. And wow. we're seeing a lot of interesting types of assets. Uh, so one thing, for example, we, you know, there's lean priority. So there's a first mortgage and people might get like a line of credit, which is a second mortgage. Uh, we have seen over the past month, probably over 5,000 defaulted lines of credit come through. And oh most of them were from COVID. And most of them, we actually bought uh, a very small pool of like 15 of them. And what these people did was they took out a line of credit because they had a huge bump during COVID, pay off all their credit card debt because we see their credit report where it was high down to zero. Now guess yeah. where those credit cards are again? Back up. Back yeah. up. Now all of a sudden yeah. I can't afford my credit cards. I can't afford this. Um, unfortunately in this country, uh, the financial education system is extremely lacking in you know, what's the numbers? 50, 60% of people live paycheck to paycheck and don't know how to balance a checkbook. Uh, so yeah. unfortunately, you know, I think that is the case today. And with interest rates and everything skyrocketing, I think over the next two to three years, we're going to continue to see um, an increase in defaulted loans. Now, I'm not predicting 2008, 
uh, by any way, shape, or form. I think we're going to continue to see a steady increase of defaulted mortgages in our space. Yeah, I, I I think we are we're seeing credit card balances are through the roof again. I think I heard recently that it's the highest that they have ever been mm -hmm. in the history of the United States, which is really kind of scary. Um, I've heard some arguments though where they say that just because balances are going up, maybe there's this group of population that is um, they're leveraging the the float that you get out of credit cards, but then they're paying them in full. But I would suspect that's a very yeah. small percentage of those yeah, people. Yeah, I think you're giving um, people way too much credit there. Yeah, yeah. Are, are we seeing like defaults on credit cards going up significantly? Do you know? Or uh, Yeah, so actually um, I have a LinkedIn post coming out that uh, I worked on this weekend. Uh, it's a great chart of it maps uh, credit card, car or auto, mortgage, yeah. student loan, and other debt. And it's basically a, gra a line chart that graphs like where everything is gone and everything is starting to really get almost a hockey stick, except for student loan uh, defaults, because that went from way up here all the way down to nothing because they haven't had to pay in several years. But uh, yeah. auto and credit card are uh, basically hockey sticking up. Uh, the mortgages is more of a kind of slow curve. And then there was another chart that did showed overall debt. And I think we're over 15 trillion now in just overall debt between student loans, mortgage, um, auto, and stuff like that, which again, in 2008, it peaked, it started going down. In the last several years, it started kind of tracking back up. That shows where, you know, again, we're at all time highs yeah. in this country in debt. And can people's salaries continue to, you know, pay that? And if we do have a, uh, you know, any type of job issues, which sounds like the Fed is still wanting to break the job market, uh, it yep. could get pretty ugly pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. So people will um, generally pay the house first and then pay the car second and credit cards and other debt comes after that. It's, as much it's as actually the right? opposite. People pay their cars first and their mortgage second. Okay. And the reason they do that is because uh, well, pre-COVID, it used to be cars first, mortgage second, because A, they need their car to get to work, and you can repo a car pretty quick. Before close on a sure. house, you know, it's going to take, no matter what, you got to be, it's going to be at least six months. So people would try sense. and okay. play that game. But now, because a lot of people working from home as well, they're like, eh, maybe I don't need the car. Come take it. So. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So. All right. So the the um, investment opportunity is eight to eleven percent, and that's based on what? Is that based on investment size or just yeah, the it, performance of the fund as a whole or investor class? So it's based, yeah, investor class. So minimum investment um, at twenty five thousand, you start getting bonus shares where it okay. you know it enhances that return. So we have different hurdles where different investment amounts get different returns. And then we also okay. have the ability to, if we do better than we anticipate, issue additional um, uh, you know, div distribution of dividends. Uh, because it's a regulation A offering, uh, you, know, you can't put that in the offering. You have to be basically start with, here's the minimum. Uh, you, know, you can't provide a guess um, of you know, saying, okay, it's 8%, but we think you're gonna get 10. Uh, it's okay. like, no, it's here's what, you know, what, what are you telling them you're going to provide? You know, it was a real interesting experience having to deal with, uh, mm -hmm. you know, going through this process with having that qualified by the SEC to really understand 
a lot of the rules and nuances mm -hmm. of you know what you can say, what you can't say, what you can do, what you can't do. Uh, for mm -hmm. example, you know some funds like a 506c, you might be able to give a for the first early investors give them additional incentive. Uh, for us, mm -hmm. we couldn't uh, because we couldn't. wanted to do that, and they're like, no, that's not it's not considered mm -hmm. a continuous offering. So hmm. the way they look at it is, okay, Randy, you talk to me today and, uh, oh, you invest today, you get that incentive. All of a sudden you wait till Friday and you invest and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, sorry, it's gone. Like there's way too much uh, delay that could be done and they like everything to be extremely black and white. Got it. So th is this an evergreen fund or is it? Yep. So it is evergreen. Uh, so okay. it's, uh, you know, open, we, you know, plan on continuing to operate this for, you know, I'll say perpetuity um, and, just, sure. and just keep, you know, raising money and keep, uh, keep moving along. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk if we can real briefly. You know, I always say keep it to 30 to 40 minutes, but I've got a lot more questions. Sure. So if you don't mind, I'd, I'd yeah. love to dig in more. So can, can we talk a little bit about 7E investments? So, yeah. um, oh, that's funny. It just hit me. 7E, 7E. Ah. Ah, I was wondering what the 7E was. So oh. tell me a little bit if you can about 7E though. Mm -hmm. um, how long have you guys have been in place? Like what's mm -hmm. the group look like? Um, what's the team look like? Those type of things. Yeah. So, you know, being a alpha male, when I started this, I thought I could do it all. And uh -huh. I, from 20, you know, 15 up through 2019, I was, I was basically doing it all. Yeah. And then, uh, I started to, um, so I ran, um, some smaller funds, some 506 C's and I did a 506 B, uh, you know, from 2018 to, you know, 2020, 2021. And also I was working at W2 at the time as well. And I got to a point where I realized I can't do it all. And I was also making, and again, I had a nice cushy corner office job, top floor kind of, so I was doing sure. very well, but I was actually doing better with my investments. So I, you know, spoke to the wife and said, you know, hey, eventually I want to kind of move out of W2 and start my own business. Uh, and probably the biggest mistake I made is I didn't bring people on fast enough. Uh, and I brought, um, first person I brought on is my business partner, Lauren, who, you know, and interestingly okay, enough, yeah. the way we, uh, met was, uh, she had just had her second child. So she was on maternity leave and she started researching, she has a sales background, but she started researching note investing and she yeah. saw me on a presentation of how to lose money in real estate. I did because I was on one of these webinars with everyone talking about how easy it is and you can make all this money. And you know, I'm the type of guy where I that stuff just drives me nuts because real estate is not easy. So she saw that and she was blowing me up on LinkedIn, but I was like at a point where you know I wasn't checking LinkedIn. So one of my friends calls me up and says, Can you please talk to her? So I, you know, we get on the call and she is just like loaded and firing questions at me. I'm like, wow, she is awesome. So after, uh, so after a few months, I finally uh, was helping her with her portfolio. I was like, hey, why don't you just come work for me part time? You know, you're home, you got your kids, you know, you must be bored, you know, you yeah, want to yeah. get your brain working again. So she came on board and, uh, you know, was working for me, um, you know, part time. And then she went and was getting ready to go back into the workforce. And that was kind of my, you know, basically, you know, what are, you know, get off the pot type of thing sure, because, sure. um, you know, a, she is incredible at what she does. And I was at a point where I had met 
the requirements for my wife in order to, you know, leave the W-2, you know, kids colleges, sure. put money put aside, all these other factors. Um, so we launched the reggae offering. Uh, so her and I, so she's a co-founder. And today we have uh, two people on asset management who also manage our portfolio, which we have 100 plus assets in our portfolio right now. Uh, we have a in-house accountant, which uh, is awesome because she has SEC experience, so she can file our nice. SEC reports. She works with our third-party auditor. Basically, them two basically keeps me out of it. And anybody yeah. who outsources your accounting, I feel for you. I know that pain. Um, yeah. And then we have uh, um, uh, three people on investor relations. So we have two salespeople um, who do retail sales, and then we have a investor relations individual. So some people may have like a fund manager, you know, or use a, you know, hire a platform to do a lot of that back office stuff. We actually brought sure. that in-house because, you know, we are type A control freaks and we want to make sure our distributions go out without a kink. If something gets kicked back for wrong account number, it's not waiting a month, we know immediately. And then just fielding all the questions. Uh, having somebody that an investor can pick up the phone and call somebody, um, that is, you know, here in the States that, you know, understands the offering can answer the questions. Uh, for us, we're, we pride ourselves on customer service and communication. So, and that's when we were building out our team, that's what we were focused on. I love it. Love it. So it's grown. Was it two, when did, uh, Lauren come on? So Lauren came on and, oh, I think I, I'm, I'm miss COVID just blows all the years out of the water. Yeah. Uh, I believe 2020 is when she came on board. So wow. Okay, so in a relatively short amount of time, three years. Three years from you guys have you guys have rolled out the reggae, and you have what's the AUM as far as number of dollars in there now? So we raised a little over 20 million in the wow. offering, and then you know it's interesting because people are like, "What's your AUM?" and uh, on the invest on the institutional side, they look at it in two ways. They're like, what's the value of the assets and what's the yep. money that you've raised in the door? So we kind of yep. always are like, you know, which number do you want to hear? So, but yeah, we've raised a little over 20 million. So I'm thinking if you're paying 9% annualized, mm -hmm. you're paying almost $2 million a year yep. in 1099 income to your investors. That's amazing. Yep. Absolutely amazing. Congratulations. So, so and and that is that is not wait for ninety days, six months, two years before you start getting paid. Like you're talking, literally within forty five to sixty days, yep. your folks are are earning these dollars. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because right now, as anybody who's out there who runs a fund, uh, you know, deploying capital is what keeps people up a lot of times at night because a, yep. it's not only finding the, you know, it's not only getting involved in a good deal, but it's finding it in a timely basis. Fortunately yep. for us, we've been extremely fortunate where, you know, we actually have more deals right now than, you know, and again, we're raising, you know, several million dollars a month, which is great, but we're seeing mm -hmm. so many deals come across our desk right now that, mm -hmm. you know, it's great because we can pick or even be more pickier on these deals. Yeah. But all of a sudden, and like people ask, oh, if someone cut you a five or $10 million check, would you stress that you couldn't get out the door? And our response would be, actually, it's not because we've yeah. had you know, deals where people have kind of said, hey, this is what we want for it. And it's just sitting there. If we want it, we could go grab it, at, you know, off the shelf at any point in time. So, yeah. It's, and it's you truly do to get to pick. You got your your pick of the crop, essentially, every single month on the deals that you're buying, just simply based on number of new investors, 
you go to your list and take the top 10 deals, whatever it is. That's, that's amazing. Good for you. Well, congratulations. So what, what's the future look like? You've grown tremendously in the last handful of years. So mm -hmm. taking that who not how mentality to 10 X, what's that yeah. going to look like come 2025, 2030? Yeah. Our goal is to get to, you know, 150 to 250 million raised. And, yeah. you know, we've started playing more on that institutional space. Uh, we have a broker dealer we're working with. We have 10 selling agreements. Uh, so, you know, we have this cool graph of, you know, us with all the people in a big circle who are helping us raise money, RIAs, investment advisors, uh, you know, working on getting on like Schwab's platform, which got stalled because of uh, wow. TD Ameritrade uh, acquisitions. Um, hmm. So, you know, we're looking to grow. And the great thing about note investing is, you know, like our average loan right now is, um, you know, that's, you know, $160,000. You know, we can keep the same loan count, but increase the loan amount. So, you know, just like, you know, somebody buying, you know, real estate, okay, instead of buying $300,000 houses, I can go buy 600,000. We can do the same thing in notes. So it's not like all of a sudden we're gonna have 3,000 loans and we need to add 30 people. Now, sure. we view the company growing to, and they probably 12 to 15 people, you know, probably as we mm -hmm. grow, need, you know, some more help on the accounting side and, you know, on the finance side of things and maybe another asset manager here and there. But after that, sure. you know, we look at our growth of, trying to maintain a nice portfolio that can be managed, but just instead of, you know, buying loans that are $120,000, $150,000 balances, just increasing that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I love it, love it. So, so scaling at a manageable level, a smart level versus just growing just to grow like a lot of people do, so very good. Yeah, I've, and I, so when I worked my W2 job, I was actually 2008 to 12, I actually, was on the construction company I was working for, a contractor. They were in acquisition mode, buying up companies um, mm -hmm. across the U.S. And I was part of an acquisition team here in the D.C. area. And, you know, we were looking at these companies that were in distress. And the issue that every one of those companies had was they grew too fast, too quickly. Yeah. From 2004 yeah. to 2007, they didn't have the right people. They couldn't up-level their people. Their people were great people, but not to take on the, the yeah. amount of work that they needed and they didn't bring on the right people and it impacted their cash flow. So having seen how that impacts people is, you know, at front and center in my mind to understand that, you know, you have to have smart growth. You can't have, you know, you can grow yeah. quickly. You just got to be very smart about it. Right. And then the last thing you want is to be those organizations that didn't make it through nine, 2009 to 2012 because they grew too fast on the front end. Yep. Right. So, yeah, very interesting. Well, very good, Chris. Well, this is this has been an interesting conversation, and you've opened my eyes to a whole new area that, of course, I'm going to get excited about and dive into and learn more. But this has been this has been exciting. Um, I I do, however, I have a few questions I like to ask everybody, and even though we're running a little bit long, I still want to hear your answers to these. So if you can bear with me as we go through those, I, I'd love to do it. Sure. All right. Well, let's dig in. Um, you mentioned that moment when you had a conversation, I think, with a boss, boss who like laughed at you and then cried mm -hmm. and then kind of heckled you a little bit on the back end. Mm -hmm. um, with that in mind, what kind of educational resources would you share with a new or newer passive investor so they don't have to get laughed at by their boss in the future and not know about this stuff? 
I mean, a lot of people always go back to, um, you know, rich dad, poor dad. And sure. for me, working in corporate, always just, you know, I feel like I was, you know, just following the flock of work my, you know, bury your head, the 40, 40, 40 rule where you work 40 hours a week for 40 years, get 40% of your income. Uh, There's yeah. so many, you have to open your eyes and, you know, just try and take on as much knowledge as possible. Um, and there, with the, you know, the advent of the internet and YouTube, there's so much mm -hmm. information out there um, that you can gain. And the one thing I'll mention to people is when you go to get educated, you don't need to spend $10,000 on a course right off the bat because the people who do usually do that too early and they start with, they don't mm -hmm. even know what information they should be absorbing and what information is like ancillary so, yep. you know, start just educating yourself and figure out what it is you would be interested in investing in. You don't need to follow everybody. You don't need to follow me and be a node investor if it's not your thing. You don't need sure. to be FOMO on short-term rentals like a lot of people were two years ago. You know, do yeah. something that fits you. I love it. I, and I think really, really good advice. I think a lot of people go to you know, one of these free events and then they get suckered into buying the weekend event, then they get suckered into buying the big event. Like yeah. there is so much information in podcasts and books and YouTube, just as you said, mm -hmm. um, you know, like my experience, I jumped in, I learned a bunch of different things and I've jumped all over the place for first, first mm -hmm. few years that I was there, mm -hmm. but I didn't spend $30,000 on a thing, which yeah. once you spend 30 grand, you pretty much feel like you got to stay in that, yeah. in that area because that would be a waste of money without it. So mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's really, really great advice. So, um, now I'm surprised there's, there's a podcast. I believe you might be involved with that might be a good spot to learn more about this. Um, do you want to tell the audience about that? Yeah. So um, if you want more information on no investing, it's called Creating Wealth Simplified is the podcast. It originally was called the Good Deeds Note Investing. So, you know, think and play on words with deeds for house and doing good deeds to yeah. work with borrowers. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned, you know, prior to recording, you know, we started that my partner at the time, Gail, we are just buying loans and we we're venting like, you know, back and forth about, you know, this person or that person or this company or this servicer or this vendor. And we basically came to the point of like, we could record this stuff because these stories are just, yeah. you know, it's like watching an episode of some of them are like watching an episode of caught cops or house hoarders. You know, you don't, sure. you're just like shocked at what happens next or Jerry Springer. Uh, so, yeah. you know, people fell in love with it. And we also were providing a lot of free education for people on what to do and what not to do, because a lot of the education in this space uh, is extremely like super high level, 30,000 feet. And sure. just like every train, every guru out there, you know, one of the more well-known gurus end up to be, well, let's just say he ended up having like $2 million in judgments against him for not returning money. So oh, you know, he's out there training people, but also taking people's money and never returning it. So, you know, it just leaves a real big black eye on the industry. So we were trying to sure. provide that content for people that is just free. Here it is, you know, here's the truth about it. Love it, love it. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and you, I think you mentioned you've been doing this for a number of years, so there's tons of content out there yeah. with lots of years. episodes to listen to. That's amazing, yep. yeah. Not, not a lot of podcasts out there that have been around for five years, so hats off to you for sticking with it and doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not an easy job. Sure. No, it's, it's a lot of work, you know, and you mentioned yeah. this is, you're doing multiple today. This is my, you know, this week, um, I've got like five that I'm recording and you know, it's, it's a lot of work. 
Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, you, you put a ton of awesome content out there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to spend more time with your channel for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Based on what I learned today, I'm sure that'll be time well spent. So, well, let's dig into kind of a fun one. I know you and I are part of a group called uh, Go Abundance, and yep. part of that group is to live life big and and uh, bucket list challenges is one of those. So mm -hmm. is there a recent bucket list item or one that you hope to be checking off your list in the near future? Ooh, good question. Uh, the one that I want to check off next is to do an African safari. So uh, family with an African safari is what we're the next one that I want to check off. So. I love it. If everybody that I have heard that has done that says that it's the single best vacation mm -hmm. they've ever done in their life. So yep. my wife and I have had that same desire to do that in the yep. in the next couple of years. So we'll have to stay in touch and, and talk about that one a little bit more. So yep, absolutely. Cool. All right. And then kind of a, a fun one here. If you had a hundred thousand dollars today to invest personally and you couldn't invest it in your own fund. Where would you put those dollars today? It's funny you ask that. I do have some IRA money sitting there right now. And I'm like, ooh, what do I invest this in? Um, so one of the companies that I just invested I invested in about six months ago, so as part of doing the Regulation A, um, you have a broker dealer who sets it up for you. And there's yeah. one called Dalmore, D-A-L-M-O-R-E, Dalmore Financial okay. Group. Uh, they do a lot of, um, they're like, the main person people go to to get all these set up. So on their website, they have all these crazy offerings. Um, okay. So one of them was this company called Miso Robotics. And what it was okay. is it was a company that created robots that worked in fast food, basically flip the burgers, do the French fries and everything. It was basically yeah. AI robots to do that. And um, so I had thrown a little bit of money at them, uh, you know, back in the day and so forth. But for me, I would I would look outside of real estate uh, because okay. that's, um, and invest in something you know uh, that's not real estate related. One of things my wife is uh, investing in right now, so she does like all the stocks and all the other stuff. Um, so she works for um, you know an international an international financial organization. So she gets to see what's going okay. on all around the world and stuff. One of the things sure. that a lot of the uh, international community is very big on is um, the uh, the minerals uh, for uh, electric batteries and coming up with yeah. the ores and a lot of those. So some of the mining companies that specialize in um, not just lithium, but there's other types of uh, minerals. Sure. I forget the name of them is something that uh, we're looking at as well. Interesting. Okay, that's the first time I've heard robots in fast food or mineral uh, minerals. Maybe mineral rights I've heard, but yeah, that's interesting. There's there's so many different places to get started. You think so a real estate guy uh, would say real estate, but uh, you know, it's you know, there's lots of other things you can invest in. Absolutely, yeah, and you've got to have a little bit of money that you're just kind of playing and speculating with right. as well. So that's yeah, where seriously, you get the check out that Dalmore page though, because you can invest in like fractional in racehorses so you can invest like and oh. you can do it for like 500 bucks and invest in just a racehorse um you know there's short-term rentals where wow. you can do fractional so one of the big things about this yeah. reg a is fractionalization of investing in a portion of an asset it's pretty cool i love it I'm not I sure if you'll make yeah, any money just, on it I, but it's cool <laughs> and it and it's not the stock market and it gives you access to alternative investments yep. that most people never even knew about exactly so yeah very cool i love it 
Well, Chris, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a ton. And uh, I think it's really just the tip of the iceberg of, of my journey with node investing. But thank you so much. I really appreciated the conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Well, Andy, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. All right. And to our audience, I would say thank you again for joining us today. And as always, um, continue your education journey for in passive investing. But more important than that, make the decision to invest in your first passive investment. I'm convinced that once you start, you'll wish that you had started so much earlier because decreasing your dependence on your W-2 is not going to happen from the stock market. And I believe the best place to do that is in commercial real estate and now potentially note investing as well. So thank you guys again for joining us today. Uh, join us again next Thursday for another great episode and be sure to like and subscribe uh, to the channel. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of The Gentle Art of Crushing It. It was an amazing episode. We know we sure learned a lot, and we hope you did as well. We want to take a second and thank you so much for viewing or listening to this episode. And please just know that we only ask for one favor, and that is to make this life magnificent. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.